Well, hello, welcome back to the Pulpit to Pew podcast and this week's adult Bible study as we continue our journey through the book of 1 John. We're on our third study. We're in chapter 2 today, and uh, this week we deal with some more about sin. Then we talk about the subject of obedience, and so it's been a good book. I'm really enjoying it. I went a little longer today than I normally do on these just because I'm enjoying it so much, I think, and trying to get some points across and, and tie some similarities in John's writing in this this epistle versus the gospel of John and the terminology and establishing that he's dealing with really fellowship with God and uh, trying to deal with all of these issues. So there's a lot to it, but I'm glad that you're listening. Thank you for being a part of it. If you're not yet, please sign up for the newsletter, the Pulpit Pew Crew newsletter. Stay up to date with what's going on and get an encouraging devotional each Monday morning. As I'm recording this, I still need to type it out for tomorrow morning's people that will be reading it, and I'm looking forward to that. So, hey, without further ado, enjoy this week's adult Bible study as we continue the journey on 1 John. All right, let's go to John, 1 John. We're going to go to John here in a minute, but let's go to 1 John, chapter number 2. Hello, Di, how are you? Come on in. 1 John chapter 2, and I think, actually I may just, it's all going to be right there, it's a small book, we may actually start in chapter 1, and because there's not a lot of verses, I may just read what we've already read and studied, just so we stay in the flow, what was John writing about, what was the context of what he was writing, so so because we don't have a lot that that uh, we're going to have to go back to, let's just go back to John 1.1, 1, 1. 1 John 1.1, 1. it says this, so remember he opened up the letter, he said, that which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus. He said, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon with our hands have handled the word of life. Someone remind me and remind the class, maybe for those who weren't here, why was he emphasizing that he had seen Jesus and that he has handled Jesus and that he's looked upon Jesus? Why is he emphasizing that? Does anybody remember why? He was the only one left. There was no more disciples. Why else? What was going on in that church back then, in those churches in Ephesus? They had, doubts. they had doubts. Some of them, because of this false teaching of Gnosticism and some of those that came in, there was some, these were second and third generation Christians that were saying, was he really the Messiah? Was he really in flesh or was it just a spirit or is it really? And they were struggling. And he, so John's writing very passionately saying, no, I, listen, I've seen him. I've looked upon him. I've handled him. I touched him. I, he was with us. Verse two, he says, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you the eternal life, which was the father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. We're telling you that ye may have fellowship, key word there, with us. We want you to experience what we've experienced. You may not be able to see him, but you can experience Christ just like we can today. He says, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And then he gives another reason, verse 4, that in these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So God is light. He's holy. In God is no sin, no darkness at all. But then he goes on and says, if we say we have 
fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So if you're saying I'm walking with God, I'm in fellowship with God, but you're actually living in sin, you're lying. You're not in fellowship with God. You're actually in sin. And he says, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another horizontally, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We also have the fellowship with God. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. Now, in our Bibles, it says a big number two, and then we go to the next one. When John's writing, he didn't stop and say, all right, all right, let's shake this out a little bit. Let's make chapter two. What's my new thought? No, he just said, let me continue. And here's what he continued to say. My little children. This is new stuff here. This is our new this week. He said, my little children, not because he was talking to a Sunday school class that was little kids. It's because he's an old guy and he's talking to younger people that he loves. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of passion. They didn't look at this and say, oh, John, he's calling us little children again. No, in, in their custom, they looked at this and said, John cares for us. This was a term of compassion. And, and so he says, my little children, these things write unto, uh, unto you that ye sin not. And then if, any, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So now, I'm going to go on further in a little bit, but I want to start here and talk a little bit. I call this in our notes, plugging the loophole theory. All right, plugging the loophole theory. And the loophole is, you know, we're always trying to find loopholes in our society, and lawyers, and, and in every little thing. What's the loophole here in this little document? Well, John was concerned that when he wrote maybe these last few verses that we read, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay, well then I can just keep on sinning. Because when I sin, all I got to do is confess it to God. He cleans me up, forgives me. I can go do some more sinning. And so there's a loophole here in the system. And so that was the mindset. You know, that wasn't only the mindset of that church. Back in Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read it. You're more than welcome to turn there. But um, Romans chapter 5 classic pet Romans 6 is a classic passage if you don't know Romans 6 you need to study it it can be a bit cherokee why am I not all of a sudden I act like I don't know where the book of Romans is it's like skipping acts in the letters to the Romans there we go Romans chapter number five at the very end of Romans chapter number five he, Paul was dealing with some people that thought okay since God gives grace when we sin then we just keep sinning and God gives more grace, and so God gets more glory. And Paul's saying, what are you guys doing, this early church? And so, but here was their mindset. Let's see if I can just find it. He says, let's just try verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. 
that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ. Then it changes chapters, but same thought. Because in chapter 6, Paul's going to correct him. He says, what shall we say then? When Paul asked the question, he was trying to get at a point back then. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so that's old English, I know, so let's modernize it for us a little bit. What he was saying to them is, guys, do you really think we should just keep on sinning? He said, God forbid, no, stop sinning. He said, it's, it, he said don't sin so that just God's grace will abound, but God's grace is so that we can see we don't need to live in that sin. You don't have to live in that anger. You don't have to live in that weird worry. I don't know why I can't talk today. I'm stuttering like crazy. Maybe it's Dan intimidating me on this front row a little bit. I don't know what it is. But he's saying, no, God forbid, how should we that are dead to sin? That's my position because of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on that cross and was buried and rose again, and when I accepted him as my Savior, I identify with his death. I identify with his burial. I identify with his resurrection. I've got a new position now. I'm no longer dead in my sins. I'm alive in Jesus Christ. So why go back to the old dead sinful ways? And so he, he, that's what he was trying to get at here. This loophole theory was, all right, if we just confess our sin, he has to forgive us then I can go sin some more. And guess what? I'll confess it and he'll forgive me again. No, he's saying, listen, guys, I'm not writing this so you have a loophole. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, these things I write unto you that you sin not. I don't want you to continue in the path of sin. Sin does nothing but destroy. Sin does, does, does nothing but hurt. It robs you of joy. I want you to have joy. I'm not writing this to give you a loophole. I'm writing this so that you will not sin. But... If you do, and we all will, because we're sinners by nature. And though I, I, our, the trajectory, trajectory of our life ought to be that we're growing and distancing ourselves from some sins that have dominated our lives, it may very well be that we sin. As I joked last week, because I know how Sunday mornings can get, some of you may have sinned on the way to church here today. But... He says, if you sin, if any man sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love this. You know what an advocate is? An advocate's a lawyer, like a defense lawyer. All right? So if you kind of picture a trial, and, and, and it's me over here on trial for something that I've done wrong, and Jesus is my lawyer, my advocate. On the other side is the prosecutor. You know who that is? The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren, Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And so he can look at me and say, oh, that Brad, he is guilty. He has done this and this and this and this and this. He is guilty. And you know what? My lawyer, Jesus, stands up and says, you're absolutely right. This guy's guilty. And I may look at him and say, hey, whoa, what kind of lawyer are you? Don't declare me guilty. He says, well, you are guilty. But then he looks back at the accuser and says, but I've already paid for the crime. I took all of that payment, the punishment that he deserved upon myself. And so he is innocent, not because of anything he's done, but because of what I did in his place. That's what an advocate is. I love that thought of an advocate. Because I, I may be sitting here thinking, and some people do. Remember, that's verse 10 of the last chapter. Where some say, well, I sin not. That's like sitting here saying, well, I don't do anything wrong. No, no, no. 
I am a sinner. I am wretched. I am guilty. But Jesus says, I took his place. I'm not going to argue with you, judge, and try to say that he's a good guy. What I'm going to say is he has confessed his sins, and his sins have been placed on my account, and it's paid in full. I've paid it. That's what my advocate does. So what he's saying is this. When you do sin, I'm writing this so you don't sin. I don't want you to sin. It's not, it destroys everything. But when you do, you have an advocate. Now, here's what happens in a lot of Christian lives. I was just talking to someone this week about this very thing. A lot of things, but this one very thing. Is this person, let's say, they're representing in this guilty chair. And they're eating up with guilt about their sin. And what is happening in that individual's life, if I can do it as a word picture, is Satan's over here reminding them of that sin. It's not the sin. I'll just pick one. Let's just pick, um, let's just pick lust. And, and Satan is reminding that person, you are so full of lust. What you have done is wrong. What you've done is sinful. What you've done is wrong. And that person is just listening to the accuser and listening to the accuser and listening to the accuser. And they're feeling guilt and guilt and guilt. And what that, and I try to encourage him to do this week is this. Hey, look to your advocate, Jesus Christ. Yes, you've done those things. But when you confess them to him and, and you're broken over that, that's what led you to this situation. You're broken over it and you've confessed it to Jesus. It's forgiven. And you know what happens once you do that and you confess it and you get it right? The accuser continues to accuse you, but no longer do you feel the guilt. Because you realize you're forgiven. And when you start feeling the guilt years later for something you've done in your past, and you've already confessed it, you've already got it right, you can mark it down. And this is where the question came in. You can mark it down. It's not God making you feel guilty over that. He's already forgiven you. It's Satan bringing it up and bringing it up. And that gets a lot of people. Because some of us have a past we're not, we're not proud of. And we'll say, we'll eat ourselves up at night or we'll eat ourselves up and say, I don't know why I did that. It's so, it bothers me, it bothers me, it bothers me. Hold on a second. Look to your right. You have an advocate. He's already forgiven you. If you've confessed it to him, you've got it right. He's not going to then turn around like we do in marriages sometimes, do we not? What's rule 101 in marriage? Don't bring up the past. Well, what do a lot of us do in our relationships? As soon as we get in a fight, it's like, all right, hold on a second now. Hold on a second. All right, here's all the things that you've done. Boom, boom, boom. You remember this back in March 3rd when you said this? And then let's go back here. That's not what Jesus does. A lot of us live our Christian lives as if we're feeling this guilt over something in our past. And we're look, we think Jesus has this list and he's just sitting over there going, tonight I'm just really bothered by what you did back 10 years ago. No, no, no. That's the accuser, Satan. And he's bringing up your past, and he's bringing up your past. And all you have to do is to him is say, you're right, I was wrong, but I've already given it to Jesus. I've already confessed it. He's already forgiven me. I have an advocate. That's what he's saying here to them. He's saying, I'm not giving you an excuse to sin, but when you do sin, you have an advocate, a defense lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he, that Jesus, is the propitiation of, for our sins. How many use the word propitiation this week in your regular vocabulary? Probably none of you. So the word propitiation means a satisfaction of wrath. And so we know that because we are sinners and God is holy, God is light, we walk in darkness by nature, we are born sinners. 
We've inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. David said, I was conceived in my sin. He wasn't saying that my mom and dad did something bad. He was saying, I was a sinner from birth. You've heard illustration after illustration. Anytime you hear a pastor talk about this, they'll talk about a baby and how that little baby is a sinner. And they know, even though they're a little cute little thing, they're still a sinner because they'll cry and they don't need anything. Their diaper's been changed. They've been fed. But they don't need anything, but they just want your attention. And you'll hear the same illustration if you've been in church for 40 years like I have. You'll hear it 40,000 times. And it's a good illustration because we have a sinful nature from birth. I, I never had to sit down with my kids and say, all right, guys, let me teach you how to lie real quick. Watch this. All right, watch this. Let me teach you. How. No, you know what? Those little kids just learn how to lie because they're protecting themselves. And all of a sudden they may get in trouble. They're like, no, it was him. I'm like, no, I sit here and watched you do it. No, it was him. Who taught you how to lie? Your mother? You know, you know, you want to, but you don't sit down and teach them sinful things. They just do it naturally. Just like, let's like this kitten. We have this cat at our house. This cat has three babies and it's doing stuff. It's moving them around. It's getting them from one place to another. It's just moved them into the garage. We're like, no, we don't want you guys in the garage. And it's moving them around. But I never, I never sat down with my cat when it got of age and said, I just want to talk to you about some things, kitten. All right? This tomcat's going to come around sometime, and then this, and then, then you're going to have babies. And when you have babies, you're going to move them around every couple of days, and you're going to be... I never... I don't have a clue what they're doing. I'm Googling it. Like, what, why are they moving? What's the time schedule here? I'm trying to figure it out. So why does a cat just know to do that? There's no one mentoring this cat. It just comes natural to that cat. And just sin just comes so natural to us. But that's why he says here, but Jesus is the propitiation. He took all of that sin upon himself and satisfied the wrath of God. God was going to, has to punish sin because he is holy. But, but Jesus satisfied that wrath on the cross. And so now he took our place. And that's why this defense lawyer, Jesus, can look at us and say he's innocent, not because he's not done anything but because I took all of it. I was his propitiation. That's what this verse is saying. And so now he is free. So that's he's continued that line of thought around sin. And really that was a continuation from last week's lesson because last week he was talking about the killer of fellowship. What kills my fellowship with God? What kills my joy? And what kills it is sin. Sin destroys it. And that's why some of you may be coming in today feeling a little down, feeling a little discouraged. I would say search your heart first of all. Could be outside reasons. There is spiritual battle that goes on in spiritual warfare. But a lot of times I find in my life why I don't have joy is because I've got sin in my life. And I gotta deal with my sin. I gotta confess it. I gotta get right. I may have to go to my spouse. Some things we've sometimes we gotta deal with that. But now he's going to transition a little bit, and he's going to talk about really what I call the, the fruit of fellowship. When I am in fellowship with Christ, this is going to come. It's going to be obedience. Now, before I do that, I, I, I hesitate to jump out of this text, but I want to read to you guys John 15. I found it real quick. List, and I want you to listen. Now, when I say that, I know you're going to be sitting there, but I want you to actually listen to the words. Try to pick... Try to pick up on words that he's saying. Try to pick up on phrases that he's saying. Because John, in 1 John, he's an older man writing. And then earlier he wrote the Gospel of John. But the terminology is very much the same. 
John 15 is one of my favorite messages. Some of you, if you were here years ago, heard me teach a lesson on it. If you've been in my classes multiple times, you've heard me teach many lessons on it. And when I do this lesson, I usually bring in a vacuum cleaner. And I, and I use it to teach abiding in Christ. And I talk about how that vacuum, I could take that vacuum around all I want when it's not plugged in, but it's not going to do anything. I mean, I just look like a fool just pushing this thing around. But the moment that it abides in the electricity, all of a sudden there's power. All of a sudden it's doing something. And that's John 15. Now he uses a different metaphor, a different analogy. He's talking about abiding in the vine. Now, the reason why I change it when I teach that lesson sometimes is a lot of us don't deal with grapes and vines. So we're not like, oh yeah, it just clicks with us. But Jesus' readers would have understood that clearly. But just listen to some of this terminology real quick. When Jesus said, I am the vine, true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Now listen to this word. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. Now, my brother said, I'm just going to read these verses real quick and not spend too much time on them. I, I'm not, I, I don't have a lot of baggage. Not baggage. I don't remember how he worded it to this. I go, I've got like three 40-minute messages from this text, so I don't want to get caught up in this because I, this is my, one of my favorite passages. But just think about that. He said, a, a branch, if it's not abiding in that vine, you know the main grape vine, if a branch isn't in there, it's not going to bear any fruit. It's not going to have any grapes one day. Because it's not connected to the vine. It's not abiding in the vine. It's not remaining in fellowship with the vine, if we want to use the terminology. But he's, Jesus says, I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. Well, that's a great verse right there. How do you glorify God? Bear fruit. Well, how do I bear fruit? Abide in Christ. That's the key in life, everything. That's why I love this passage. You abide in Christ, you'll bear fruit. You bear fruit, you glorify God, you glorify God, you fulfill your purpose while you're put on this earth. It's right there in that verse 8, all right? But I can't stay there right now. But he says... So shall you be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things, now listen to this verse, and I'll just stop on this one. I th think one more after this one. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Doesn't that sound familiar? In verse 12, this is commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Now, I read all of that because that's the backdrop for what he's going to be saying right here years later. Because now he says this to him. He's going to use some more fellowship, what I call fellowship terms. But he's going to say it in verse 3. Hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, there's a lot of controversy, and I'm not going to get into about these next few verses. Is he talking about whether you know him as whether you're saved or not, or is he talking about whether you're in fellowship? I think context is the key. It's, I think it's clear to me that he's talking about, here's how you know you're in fellowship with him. You're in obedience to him. 
So if you're, it's just like verse, that one verse where he says, if you walk in the light, you're in the light. If you're walking in darkness, you're not walking in light. You're not, you're not in fellowship with Christ. It's pretty simple. But what he's telling to us here in this verse is, here, and hereby do we know that we know him. How do I know him? How do I experience Christ? How do I see what people talk about? I, I, I read a devotional this morning about a guy named Mel Trotter. Mel Trotter was a drunk he was absolutely miserable man. And then all of a sudden, I was going to bring it and read it to you today, but he received Jesus Christ as Savior. Then he began to walk with the Lord. He started some rescue missions, helped, ended up helping all kinds of people in his life. But what, what changed? He was, when he got saved, he started abiding in Christ and fellowship with Christ. And all of a sudden, this guy that had no hope for a future has a power about his life. What changed? Well, now he's abiding in Christ. Now, in Christ, God is using this guy that we would look at and say, there's no way this guy can do anything. But now he's doing something. And so, when we, he says, we know that we know him when we keep his commandments. Obedience naturally flows from fellowship with God. So, you cannot say, which is going to be this next verse. Let's just read it. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. You can't say, I'm in fellowship with God. I'm abiding in God. I am doing the work. That's like me going around pushing a vacuum and saying, I'm cleaning these floors and I don't have it plugged in. Imagine if I should have started my class that way today. I should have just been starting my class and just been pushing this vacuum and just having the cord just dangle around behind me and just say, I'm just vacuuming up today and just did it for like 15 minutes. It had been the awkwardest 15 minutes for this introvert in me. I would have been miserable, but I should have just done it for like 10, 15 minutes. Then we're done and be like, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm about to finish this up, guys. Once I finish this up and then we'll get class started, I should have just done it the whole time. And they just put it up, wrapped the cord up and said, all right, how do you think these, and just went on. You guys, and not said a word until the end of the class. You guys have been like, this guy has lost his mind. <laughs> Michelle would be like, I've been telling you guys this for some time. But you guys would all look at me and say, you didn't clean the floors because you weren't, you wouldn't use these terminology, but because you weren't abiding in the electricity. And for many that say, well, I'm in fellowship with God, but you're not obeying his commandments. No, you're not. Fellowship is abiding. When you are in fellowship with God, you're going to see power. Now, if you'd have came in here and I had that vacuum going loud, you're going to hear it. You're going to see it. If there was stuff on the ground, you're going to hear that. You know, that sound it makes when it gets something caught in there and click, you know, you just hear it right now. It, it, you're going to know, boy, I can see you can tell when someone's walking with God. Yes. You see it. You just see it in their life. There's something, there, there's an excitement about them. There's the joy that we're talking about. They're seeing things happen in their lives. I'm not saying that you always have to have a story, but I'm just saying it, you don't even have to go around trying to brag about yourself. It just happens. It's just obvious. I didn't, I'm looking at these floors right now, and I know somebody cleaned them at some point this week. I don't know who did it, but it's obvious. You can just see the work. And I'm telling you, when, when you are abiding in Christ and in fellowship with him, it's just obvious. And so some people that struggle with these verses, or I want to take these verses and say it's about salvation. I don't necessarily think so, but I do think this. You know what I find? There's a difference between assurance of my salvation and eternal security. Eternal security is a doctrine. Once you are saved, you are saved. You cannot lose your salvation. Jesus said that I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. That's just one verse. Eternal security, you cannot lose it. You can, now 
stay with me. You can lose the assurance of your salvation. What does that mean? Assurance is just my confidence. There's some times when I just don't feel confident that I'm saved. Now, I am saved because I'm eternally secure. But you know why I don't feel confidence? Because feeling is an emotion. Obviously, it's part of emotions. And it goes based on whether I'm in fellowship with God or I'm not in fellowship with God. So my one line that helps me remember, when I'm, in, when I'm out of fellowship with God, I'm not going to feel saved. And those are the ones that come to me a lot of times and say, I just don't know if I'm really a Christian or not. I'll say, have you ever trusted Christ's Savior? Well, yeah, I have, but I don't feel saved. You know what that immediately tells the counselor? Sin somewhere. There's some sin somewhere. And so now I just start prying, trying to figure out where's that sin. Because if you don't feel saved, but you know, hey, I know without a shadow of a doubt at this point in my life, I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Not like some testimonies I've heard where somebody said, well, one day I was staring at this light and all of a sudden this, this candle or this, uh, this statue began to move and I just knew that meant I'm going to heaven. I'm like, all right, you need to be saved because okay? that's not salvation. So you need to be saved because that's not a salvation testimony. <laughs> so Jesus died for your sins. He was buried in sins. But if someone says, no, I've truly been saved, but man, I just don't, I just don't feel saved. I feel like I've something, then that's just a trigger. Hey, you're just out of fellowship with God. You got to get abiding back in that electricity. You need to get abiding back in Christ because once you're abiding in Christ, you don't have to assure, you don't have to go to someone and say, hey, do you really think you're saved? No, you're like, hey, I can't wait. God has been amazing. I'm seeing him answer my prayer. I'm seeing things done in people's lives and being able to witness to people. All of this is going on. It's so exciting because the abiding Christian life that I believe, if I was teaching another lesson, that Jesus says that's supposed to be your normal life. That's just the normal. That's why we need revival because we stop seeing that and we have revival services to encourage us to get back abiding in Christ. But that is what he's talking about here, fellowship. But he, if he says, if you say you're in fellowship, though, and you say you know him, but you're not keeping his commandments, you're not in obedience, you're a liar. And the truth is not in him. But then look at verse 5. But whoso keepeth his word, so you're obeying, you're, you're continuing to keep his word, and verily the love of God is perfected. The love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. I wrote some things in my notes that I haven't been looking at. Let me find this here. I'll get to this statement. Let me back up to a couple of things that I've skipped over. The idea of know here is a knowledge gained by experience. It's fellowship. To keep in this verse means to attend carefully, to a guard, to observe. I think about this passage in Matthew 15 when Jesus said this. He says, This people draweth nigh to me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's sometimes what we can do in church. We can come to a church service and we can honor God with our mouths to people. We know they say the right thing. We honor Him with our lips and we may sing a song. Although a lot of times we won't if we're out of fellowship. But sometimes we can be in fellowship and sing a song. But the truth is our heart that we cannot see. I don't sit up on the platform and lead singing and look at your heart and go, mm, look at there, little sinner right there, look at that. <laughs> That would be a sweet superpower, though, would it not be if I could do that, but I can't. But all, all we do is we can look and see who's singing and may look fine, but we have no idea what's going on in the heart. Jesus could see, though. That's why Jesus said, hey, they, draw, they, they say all kinds of good things with their mouth, and they draw nigh with their honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's the opposite of what we're trying to talk about here in this class, about fellowship with God. It's, it, and what he says here, which is what I want to get at in verse 5, 
when we are keeping his word and we're in obedience with, with him, it says the love of God is perfected. And I wrote a couple things in our notes here. Immature Christians. When I say immature Christian, I just mean ones that haven't grown. Maybe they need discipleship, so they may be immature just out of nature. You know, Elijah's eight years old. My son, he turns eight tomorrow. He's immature just because he's eight. Okay? Hopefully, if he's acting the same way when he's 26, we've got a big problem, right? So hopefully he naturally matures. So there's some natural level into that. But you can just be an immature Christian. But immature Christians, they are motivated by warning or reward. All right, God, what's the reward? I'll serve you. I'll go to church, but what are you going to do for me? That's a lot of people today. I don't like that church because it doesn't do anything for me. Well, church isn't about you. Church is about God. What are you doing for God? So, well, I, you know what? I don't, I don't like that class because of this. Well, it's not about you. It's about worshiping God. It's about praising God. It's about serving God and encouraging others. But, but immature Christians, they have to be rewarded or they have to be warned. You know what? Like sometimes my kids, hey, brush your teeth. Brush your teeth now or you're going to blank. Okay, now I'm going to go brush my teeth. But all of you in here, I'm assuming, are pretty mature, and you just got up and brushed your teeth, and you didn't have anybody warning you, right? Because you've matured. Now, some of us, maybe we still need that warning. But for the most of it, I think you just got up and did it without anybody warning you. What well, we had to warn the kids this morning, get them to do it. Same thing in their spiritual life. There's sometimes people are just immature, because, and they have to be warned in a sense. Like, so what's going to happen if I skip church? Like, I had, I had a teenager text me a few times and say, so if I skip reading my Bible one day, what's going to happen? I go, nothing. You're going to be fine. But when you skip one day and then you skip another day and you skip another, all of a sudden you don't care anymore. And you know what you're doing? You're grieving God. God, we look at God like, oh, God's going to punish me. And that's what he was getting at in this question. Like, what's going to happen? Is God going to strike me? No, God's going to be broken because he loves you. Just like, what do I go? What if I go one day without talking to my wife? Can I get away with it? Just like, hey, I don't want to talk today. Just leave me alone. Well, she may just think, well, he's in a bad mood. I'll leave him alone. I go two days. She's going to be like, she may think, well, this is great. But, she, but hopefully, hopefully she's, she's a little too big of a smiler. But, but hopefully she starts to grieve about that a little bit and thinks, hey, why don't you want to talk to me? What's wrong with our relationship? I think it's the same thing with God. We look, we look at God as like he's going to thunder down from heaven. No, I think God's just broken saying, hey, why don't you want to spend time with me? And so let me wrap it up with this last verse. Verse 6 is where we're ending today. It's a good verse, though. Because listen, there's a key word that I highlighted in my Bible here. Verse 6, he that saith he abideth. That's why I went back to John 15. He's going to that same word. He that saith he abideth. That's a fellowship term. You're abiding in the vine, abiding in Jesus. He says, so he that saith he abideth in him. Look at that next word, ought. Ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. You know that word ought? Like, I ought to eat healthy today. Well, what does that imply? I'm probably not going to eat healthy today. I've told my wife that I'm going to start tomorrow. I'm just disgusted right now with myself. And tomorrow I'm going to start running again and start getting back in shape. I ought to do that tomorrow. But I've said that for three months. So I ought to do that. I plan on doing it. Right now as I stand here verbally committing this to you guys as my accountability partners on social media, I want... To do that. And I ought to do that. But ought leaves that that I may not. 
And what he's saying here is, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Doesn't mean he will. So the idea is, if you're in fellowship with God, you ought to want to do this. You want to imitate the life of Christ. But it means, ought means a couple of things. It means we can. Like, I can run tomorrow. I can exercise tomorrow. I can eat healthy today. I can do it. Ought, ought implies something that you can do. It's not beyond it. Like, if I say, well, I, I ought to be the president. Well, I'm not going to be the president. Okay? I just, I'm never going to be the president of the United States. So I can say I ought to be all I want, but it's not going to happen. Ought has the implication, the, the idea that it's something that actually can be achievable. I can run tomorrow. I can exercise. I can do these things. So he says we ought to, but it also means that some won't. And you know what? You can be saved. You can be a Christian and not walk in fellowship with God. You can be. It's not the best life. You're going to be miserable. You're going to have no joy. You're not going to like it. But a lot of Christians live there. They, that's where they live. And they wonder, why don't I see any answer prayer? Why, why do I not see some of these things happen that I read about in these missionary letters? Missionaries don't have a special access to God. Preachers don't have a special access to God. It's all about abiding in the vine. It's all about plugging into the electricity current that's going on. Jesus says, my grace is available to all of you. You just have to abide in me. We ought to walk as Jesus walked. But sometimes we don't. So my, I think my encouragement for you today is this. Know this, that sin, we're not to sin. Last week was not a loophole to say, all right, I can just go sin, do whatever I want, and confess it to God. He has to forgive me. We move on. No, it's not a loophole. He says, I write these things that you don't sin. I want you to be in fellowship with God, and the fruit of your fellowship will be obedience. And that's what you ought to do. But he knew some of you are not going to do it. And I hope that each one of us in here would say, I want to walk in fellowship with God. And I want to see, I want to test it. If I'm in fellowship with God and abiding in the vine, what will God do? Now, be careful, because remember I said an immature Christian needs to be rewarded. Don't get to that point where you're like, God, what are you going to do? Do it anyways. And you may see no rewards for years. I could talk forever about this subject. David Livingston was a missionary for seven years, I think. I may get my numbers wrong. Never saw one convert for seven years, but he stayed faithful. Imagine if he was an immature Christian and needed a reward. He'd have quit a long time ago but he stayed faithful. Let's pray.